Welcome to Back to Health, your source for the latest in health, wellness, and medical care. Keeping you informed so you can make informed healthcare choices for yourself and your whole family. Back to Health features conversations about trending health topics and medical breakthroughs from our team of world-renowned physicians at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing advances in sleep apnea care. My guest is Dr. Maria Serna. She's an assistant professor with Weill Cornell Medicine. She's an ear, nose, and throat, head and neck surgeon and board certified in sleep medicine. Dr. Serna, what's the health burden and economic impact of sleep apnea and sleep disorders in general? Sleep apnea has been getting much more attention because we're now much more aware that untreated sleep apnea has at least two health problems, especially cardiac disorders, depression, hypertension, diabetes. It's also associated with a lot of motor vehicle accidents. People are three times more likely to get in a car accident if they have untreated sleep apnea. Um, it also has a very um, significant economic impact um, as well, and not just uh, from the healthcare standpoint, but also absenteeism um, from uh, work, um, poor attention span, uh, patients, uh, people actually um, getting into industrial or car accidents. And so it's actually been estimated that um, economic burden could be somewhere around $150 billion a year uh, uh, in the United States. So, um, unfortunately, um, majority of patients with sleep apnea actually go undiagnosed. And so, if we could diagnose more uh, patients with sleep apnea, then uh, those costs could be potentially <laughs> cut down. And then also, people can have actually their um, health issues uh, prevented that could be uh, easily prevented by just diagnosing and treating sleep apnea. Who notices sleep disorders? Is it a loved one, your partner, or are there symptoms that you would notice in yourself? Well, uh, patients are not really, uh, they're not usually aware of um, uh, their problems with uh, with sleep. A lot of times their family member or a bed partner would complain of them snoring or having disrupted sleep, pausing during sleep, um, having like very restless sleep. so they will be the first ones uh, to complain about sleeping issues because they are their quality of sleep is also disturbed uh, just because their bed partner is uh, sleeping like very loud or has like a lot of movement during sleep um, or wakes up throughout the night. So, but as far as patients themselves, um, they usually might they might complain of fatigue or waking up with headaches or not feeling fully rest, uh, rested even despite of like sleeping for uh, seven to nine hours. And um, sometimes they fall asleep during the day. They might be falling asleep um, driving. So sleepiness is probably one of the most common complaints from um, the people with sleep apnea. But again, a lot of times they just uh, might blame it on some other uh, factors and not necessarily necessarily be aware of um, ongoing um, problem during uh, sleep. Um, so a lot of times, actually, yes, you're right. Like, you know, the loved ones and the family members are the first ones to point out that there is some sleep disturbances um, in the individuals. Who is most at risk for sleep apnea? Is there a genetic component? And what are some medical disorders that may induce sleep disturbance or sleep apnea? So, um People, there's definitely some um, genetic component to sleep apnea um, because people who have um, their, like, you know, uh, parents or grandparents or siblings who have sleep apnea, they also um, seem to 
uh, seem to be more likely to have sleep apnea. Um, uh, in general, uh, older uh, people, uh, men uh, more than women, um, and uh, certain um, ethnic uh, populations, they actually have uh, more predisposition to uh, sleep apnea. There is definitely, like you know, as I said, there is a genetic component. We just don't have exact, uh, we haven't really fully discovered the uh, underlying genetic uh, gene or like, you know, genetic uh, group specifically uh, that we can actually test for, but um, and definitely there is a positive, um, there, there's a presence of positive family history of sleep apnea. Um, also, people who tend to have more of a um, bigger, larger neck size who have crowded airway, and the uh, sleep apnea is more prevalent in people who are significantly overweight, uh, and uh, uh, obesity has been uh, kind of slowly progressing a problem in this country, and there's very, very high association with sleep apnea when people get over a certain uh, weight. So I think a very important question are some of the complications of untreated sleep apnea. Some people don't even know that they have it. And so what else can it cause if it is not diagnosed and treated? Well, yeah, again, people, a lot of people who have sleep apnea, some of them might not even be aware, aware of it because they might be leaving, like living alone. Um, their bed partners might be sleeping in a separate room um, or their bed partners are so used to it and they just maybe be sound sleepers and um, they're not really paying attention to uh, whether to what's happening with their um, loved one. But um, if uh, a lot of times it's actually people don't really experience any health issues. Some people actually don't even feel tired despite of having sleep disturbances during the night. But uh, some of the things that are commonly associated with untreated sleep apnea is actually uh, persistent high blood pressure. Um, people are at a high risk of developing heart disease and um, um, irregular heart rhythm. Uh, they're more likely also to die from untreated sleep apnea. Um, and uh, also getting into car accidents. So I think like, you know, car accidents, uh, they're not necessarily just putting that individual at risk, but they're also putting other people at risk. So I think those are some of the main um, issues with untreated sleep apnea. And as a society, it's kind of hard to ignore it just because of the, um, not just individual, but also like, you know, uh, effect on the society as a whole. And especially when we're talking about uh, public transportation, especially when we talk about like derailing of the trains or uh, accidents uh, that are caused by um, in, in when it's actually more of a public transport and uh, the person who is operating the vehicle is actually, has, un has actually untreated sleep apnea. So... From that perspective, it's not just individual, but also a social concern. That's an important point, Dr. Serna. So tell us a little bit about diagnosis. How is the assessment and evaluation done to find out that someone has sleep apnea? So um, a lot of times, as I said, a lot of people come in because they're mostly either um, referred by their primary care physicians or who are suspecting that patients might have sleep apnea just based on their history and uh, their exam or um, even past medical history, or if their spouses actually encourage uh, patients to get evaluated. So obviously the diagnosis starts with thorough uh, history, physical exam. Uh, still gold standard diagnosis for sleep apnea is actually performing a, a sleep study. And uh, the sleep study nowadays can be performed either in the lab uh, where patients go in and um, spend the night in a, um, in a kind of uh, outpatient uh, healthcare facility, 
or um, they can actually take equipment home and um, do the sleep study in their home environment using affordable equipment. So you said that they can bring equipment home because people hear about sleep studies, Dr. Cerna, and they're anxious and they wonder how they can even get to sleep with somebody watching them or if they're all hooked up. How can you get a good result at the actual clinic for a sleep study and what's the difference between what they have to do at home? Right. So, yeah, that's a very, very good point. Uh, patients um, do get a little concerned about sleeping in the unfamiliar environment. So, um like, you know, in the lab sleep studies, yes, you do have to spend the night uh, somewhere outside of your bedroom, outside of your comfort, like outside of comfort of your home. Uh, it is in a facility that sometimes could be um, not exactly the right temperature. Sometimes it could be of like, you know, it might be a little bit noisy. And then again, being in a familiar environment, some, some people feel very uncomfortable. Um, so that's the, one of the downsides of doing this study in the um, lab facility. So uh, some of the things uh, you can do. I mean, I, it's it's kind of hard to say like what you can do. Like you know, try to get into the um, to the lab uh, at the time where you are about to like you know to go to sleep. So you're trying to get the schedule the sleep study during the uh, time when you normally would go to sleep. Um, we usually suggest for patients not to uh, drink too much caffeine, avoid alcohol, and try to avoid naps before um, going for a sleep study, and uh, try not to do any kind of like you know activities that are more of like stimulating and trying to stay like more relaxed and avoid any kind of anxiety or any kind of stressful situations. So by the time they get to the uh, sleep lab, they can be relaxed and ready to sleep. Um, and so, uh, yes, unfortunately, the most uncomfortable part, I think, is mostly like the wires that get attached to the um, or to the head and chest and uh, little sensors that are being placed on the uh, uh, on the body. Um, nowadays, they're trying to kind of make them more comfortable and minimize and make them smaller, but that is still, uh, some people find it very, very uncomfortable. So that's why um, the home sleep studies actually have gained more popularity uh, because this is something that you can bring home with you and you can use that in the comfort of your home. They're much easier to set up because a lot of those home sleep studies just really have like a finger sensor and like a sensor that you pre put on your chest. Um, and um, some of them have a little bit more uh, sensors that are going to go around your face and your uh, not just your fingers and the chest, but something also that comes onto your face as well. But um, depending on the equipment type, but a lot of this, um, um, those uh, take-home studies are much more comfortable and easier to use. And then also patients are not, um, their sleep is not disrupted by being in an unfamiliar environment. Um, there is a little bit of a difference uh, when you talk about doing in the lab versus home sleep study, because in the lab you can get it's a monitor sleep study. Um, somebody's uh, always like watching you sleep. If there's something um, that goes wrong, there's a sensor is off. You can actually have the um, the technician uh, help you replace it, and uh, uh, they're also are able to get more information and not just about uh, sleep apnea obstruction, but also about sleep stages, about uh, breathing patterns, about your heart rate, about movement, and um, et cetera. 
uh, some of that information is not really available when you perform a home sleep study. So home sleep studies, they're good uh, for patients in whom you suspect sleep apnea, um, obstructive sleep apnea. And, but when it comes to diagnosing some other sleep disorders, we still uh, rely mostly on using uh, sleep lab facilities. If someone is diagnosed with sleep apnea, tell us about the first-line mm-hmm. treatment and explain what CPEP is. They've heard about it in the media. And tell us what it is, how it works, and is there an issue with adherence to CPAP and compliance and are people not wanting to use this device to help them? Right. So... Sleep, uh, CPAP has been available to people since about like 1980s, like early 1980s. Um, and that was at that time, it was a revolutionary treatment because it allowed people to be treated without actually undergoing any kind of invasive uh, procedures. Um, so what CPAP is, it's, um, it's equipment that gets placed over patient's face, the nose or mouth, and it provides positive pressure that uh, allows uh, airway to stay open. Because if you think about what sleep apnea um, is, is the airway obstruction during sleep. What happens is the muscles relax, and once the muscles relax, the airway um, starts to collapse. And if the airway collapses, it um, makes it, it reduces the airflow, and occasionally uh, people can actually stop breathing for a period of time during sleep. Uh, so what CPAP does, it, it provides positive pressure that stents the airway open and prevents it from collapsing. And it's an effective treatment, um, and you have to wear it on your face uh, every single night and the entire night in order for it to actually um, prevent sleep apnea and uh, provide people with benefits, with treatment benefits. So a lot of times people uh, find, well, I guess uh, some people find it amazing. Some people actually put the mask on and they um, sleep so much better with uh, with the with the CPAP that they cannot imagine sleeping without CPAP anymore ever. Um, some people find that um, the mask is uncomfortable. They don't like having anything on their face. Um, they try so over time. They can get desensitized from it, and they can get used to it. Um, and uh, it, it's in some cases, it's more of a matter of finding the right mask, the right fit. Uh, the, mass that actually is comfortable, um, that they can, doesn't restrict their mobility and doesn't restrict their movement and uh, doesn't, doesn't disrupt their sleep. Some people find it being very claustrophobic, so no matter how, what type of mask they put on the face, they just feel that that's suffocating and they just can't use it. Um, so it's a very individual. So you kind of uh, have to approach each patient with a little bit more individual needs, depending on one, the severity of sleep apnea, two, their anatomy, um, can they use the nasal mask versus like a full face mask? Um, because in some people, if they're, for example, mouth breathers or they have blocked um, nose, I mean, those are some of the, uh, in those cases, the nasal mask might not be the right fit. So um, doing more of an individualized approach and actually looking at patient's anatomy, their needs, their severity of sleep apnea, uh, might be the key of trying to get them fitted with the right mask. And then also patients could try different masks. They can try um, different sizes masks, different uh, material, like masks could be made out of different materials, and et cetera. So compliance is an issue. And um, the 
CPAP is only as effective as uh, compliance with the treatment. Um, in order to benefit from CPAP, you unfortunately have to wear it all the time, the entire night, and pretty much for the rest of your life. Um, and uh, currently, the compliance rates, like long-term compliance rates, are about 30% or, or so in general population. Uh, with uh, more of a, a therapy, like, you know, CPAP, desensitization, and um, a trial of different masks, like, you know, the compliance could be improved. Uh, there's also machines that have gotten quieter, and then also there is auto-adjustable pressure uh, on the some of the uh, machines that kind of, again, uh, adjust their the strength of the uh, pressure, like air pressure, depending on the people's needs. So some of those things have been uh, kind of have evolved, like technology has evolved. So that has improved patient compliance. But again, it's still not, uh, it still has been the major issue when it comes to treatment is the compliance with the treatment. So tell us about a new alternative to CPAP. Speak a little bit about hypoglossal upper airway nerve stimulation and what that is as compared to CPAP and how it can help patients. So um, if, so CPAP is still, as I mentioned, is uh, considered to be the gold standard treatment, the first treatment, and it's uh, uh, non-invasive treatment for uh, people with sleep apnea. Um, if people are not able to tolerate uh, CPAP, then we start looking at the alternative treatment options. Um, some of the alternative treatment options include um, oral appliances, uh, mouth guards that could be made by the dentist. And what they do, they pull the jaw slightly forward, and that opens up the airway and prevents uh, airway from collapsing and prevents the tongue from collapsing during sleep. And so that can be very effective for um, for some patients. Um, if that's not under, uh, if, if this is not a treatment option for whatever reason, um, and people cannot either tolerate the oral appliance or they are, um, are not candidates for oral appliance, then we start looking at the um, surgical uh, treatment. And um, in the past, the only surgical treatments that we could offer are were the treatments that were geared towards. Uh, opening up the airway by either removing um, some of the palate and um, tonsillar tissues or reducing the size of the tongue or moving like um, or changing craniofacial structures by moving the jaw forward. Um, nowadays, now we have uh, um, an alternative uh, therapy um, available, which is an implantable device. Uh, this device is um, implanted. Uh, it's kind of similar to like a pacemaker type devices, and it's implanted under the skin, uh, and uh, the um, device is connected to the nerve, a hypoglossal nerve. This nerve innervates the tongue and moves the tongue forward and also is responsible for opening up the um, airway um, by protruding the tongue forward and, and um, stiffening the muscles of the airway. So during sleep, uh, the device... It, so before you go to sleep, you turn the device on, and then once you're asleep, the device provides mild uh, neurostimulation to the nerve, and that in turn opens up the airway with each breath. There's also a breathing sensor that sits between the ribs and monitors the airway, the, the pattern of breathing in uh, each individual, and um, the device then tries to deliver neurostimulation before each individual breath so that uh, it keeps the airway open and prevents it from collapsing. Um, it is a surgical procedure. It's uh, an outpatient uh, 
procedure that uh, requires an implantation of the device. Uh, people usually go home the same day, and um, it's a uh, recovery is. Uh, you know, a couple of days of recovery from just the uh, incisional discomfort, um, but that does not result in any um, like long-term sequela in terms of um, swallowing issues or changes in the um, anatomy of the airway or changes in um, structural changes of the face or in the throat. Wow, what a fascinating discussion about sleep apnea that so many people suffer from and some don't even really realize that they do have sleep apnea. It's so important that they get it diagnosed and get it treated. Wrap it up for us, Dr. Serna, with your best advice regarding sleep apnea and getting diagnosed if you think that you might have some of the symptoms or risk factors that you've mentioned here today. I think it's uh, very important to get diagnosed and to know whether you have a sleep apnea. If um, you if you feel that you don't get quality of sleep, like quality sleep despite of how, uh, many hours of uh, sleeping and staying in bed, if you feel like you're waking up tired during the day, you feel fatigued, fall asleep while uh, in the meetings or during um, during the day, like you know during um, lunch meetings or even uh, watching TV uh, or uh, easily fall asleep behind uh, the wheel, then those could be some of the symptoms of um, potential sleep apnea. Also, pay attention to what your uh, bed partners and uh, family members say because sometimes they could be um, the first uh, to notice uh, breathing issues during sleep, especially when it comes to airway obstruction and snoring. Um, if that's the case, then uh, I would suggest to start uh, at least with your primary care physician so that they can direct you towards the right treatment, um, recommend either a sleep specialist who can further evaluate you or diagnose you with sleep apnea. Thank you so much, Dr. Serna, for coming on with us today and sharing all this great information about sleep apnea and the importance of getting diagnosed. This concludes today's episode of Back to Health. We'd like to thank our listeners and invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review Back to Health on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Play Music. For more health tips, please visit wildcornell.org and search podcasts. And parents, don't forget to check out Kids HealthCast. Rehabilitation medicine can help patients with a wide array of disorders and diseases, including cancer. If cancer care is of interest, listen to CancerCast, while Cornell Medicine's dedicated oncology podcast featuring leaders in the field and patient stories, CancerCast highlights dynamic discussions about the exciting developments in oncology. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.